Welcome to the Pre-PT Grind Podcast. Before we begin this episode, we would like to thank you for choosing to invest time and knowledge into yourself as a pre-PT and future physical therapist. This episode has been sponsored by our new Acceptance Navigator series, which is a free four-part video pre-PT series where we teach you exactly how to dominate as an applicant by learning the new way to PT school acceptance. Learn how to finally get into the driver's seat as a pre-PT and not leave your acceptance to chance by shooting in the dark and hoping for the best as an applicant. This series is the most value we have ever given away and it's free at www.acceptancenavigator.com. That's www.acceptancenavigator.com. Don't miss out on your chance to get in the driver's seat of your acceptance. Now, sit back, relax, and enjoy the rest of the podcast episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Pre-PT Grind, where we help you become the best pre-PT applicant and student you can be. My name is Natalie, and I'm one of the podcast directors. I'm very excited to be on here today because we have the chair of physical therapy from University of Mount Union, and Dr. Holt is joining us to answer a few questions regarding their program. Thank you, Dr. Holt, for taking your time out of the day to chat with me. Thank you. All right, let's dive into the first question. In five minutes or less, tell us about what led you to the profession. Well, that was a long, long time ago, so I'll try to think back. But uh, in the late 1970s, I was trying to determine whether I wanted to go into the field of being a physician or whether I wanted to go into rehabilitation. And I had been through a lot of rehabilitation as a child. And so I think that there was a lot of personal meaning for me to be the therapist that I wished I had had. And so I started my career in 1974 was when I started school, graduated with my bachelor's in physical therapy in 1978. And then to get where I currently am, was a series of uh, choices of meeting the right patient at the right time to decide that I wanted to know more and research more, do more. And so throughout my career, I would go back to school periodically. And in in the 1990s, I went to Ohio State and got a master's. uh, That was an advanced master's at the time to further my understanding in pediatrics, which is my main strength right uh, now in terms of clinical skills. And then through that experience and through some research opportunities at Ohio State, I went on to get my PhD at University of Kentucky. And I didn't graduate from that until 2016. So I've been really kind of a lifelong learner and uh, the field has always been an inspiration to me. So I, I feel like I will keep growing until I retire and then hopefully not stop. <laughs> So you mentioned pediatrics. Did you, when you originally started, did you think that you would get into a portion of your life where your main focus for like research and stuff was on pediatrics? Or did you, I know like a lot, a lot of students, myself included, are kind of like, right now they're everyone's like, no, like I, I know I want to be an outpatient or like, I know I want to be inpatient. So did you have that like moment where you're like, for a while you knew that you wanted to be in pediatric or was it because of those experiences that you kind of changed? So that's a great question. And I think I see it a lot with my students. You have clues about what matters to you, but you don't know exactly how it will fit in real life. And you don't know when you get out into the clinic, whether your love or your passion about that will translate into a competency or a skill where you feel you're 
doing what you want to do with that population. So I think the short answer is that when there's something that matters to you, then what also matters is that you have the ability to do something in that field and you feel like that it's a good match. So I, I would say I did not have that sense right away, though I had had a, a precursor moment, something that had happened that had kind of set the stage for me eventually finding my passion in pediatrics. And that was I had uh, had a chance to be in Japan and I got to go to a rehabilitation center. Now, bear in mind, I couldn't speak the language completely. And that may be part of what set the stage is that when I went to this rehabilitation center at that time, I had just graduated from high school and was still unsure of what my degree was going to be in. But when I went to that rehabilitation center and I saw the energy of those kids in their wheelchairs and with their lost train crutches and um, just their personalities, it, it probably planted a seed that inevitably was going to pull me back into that arena. And, and I sort of knew that at the time, but I hadn't really identified with that. So I started my career in rehabilitation with kind of general population and geriatrics. And let me go back one step. So I, before I started my career, I had done one of my clinicals in pediatrics, and I was so discouraged by that rotation. And I think that's something I see with a lot of my students. They come in, they know they want peds. You can see their interest. You can see their background. Then they go off and they have a horrible peds rotation, and they think, okay, I'm not doing this. And what I would say just to, to, to address that issue is a horrible peds rotation is not that unusual because it is something that's very difficult to step into. There's so many nuances and dimensions to being a pediatric therapist that it's very difficult, even if you've been surrounded by nieces, nephews, baby brothers and sisters, been a phenomenal babysitter, even a nanny, you still don't know how to work with a teenager the next session and then deal with a difficult parent or a child's meltdown and to know the difference between school-based therapies and clinic-based therapies and developmental processes versus acute processes, it's a lot. So that said, if you know you want to go in peds and you have a rough pediatric rotation, please don't let that be a dead end for you. Know there's more out there. You may need some space and time to develop yourself as a, as a PT, but don't throw that out. Don't, don't, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. So for in my case, it took me three years of practice and then an overseas experience where once again, I went over to work in an acute care hospital in Taiwan and I was working with general population. And while I was there, I had the opportunity to meet some wonderful children who were living in what was called a polio home uh, because the polio epidemic hit later in Taiwan than it did in the States. And so this home was populated by, I would say, 40 children who had had polio and it brought back that same energy that I had when I had gone to the rehabilitation center. And again, I think for me, because it was not on my path, it wasn't where I was planning to go, it interrupted my path, then it was more poignant because it kept grabbing my attention and taking it away from the goals that I had. So when I came back from that experience, which was about a year in Taiwan, I had a year then of working with these kids once a week. And when I came back, I knew I was ready to apply at a children's hospital, but it took me four full years from the time I graduated before I made my first application. And then I would say that the day I walked into Akron Children's Hospital, I knew that I had found my niche and it's what I wanted. And then from that point, then I just grew my pediatric understanding from all different areas that were available to me over the course of really decades, not days or weeks or months. And so 
if, if you know you want peds, then be stubborn and, and hold on to that. Don't get discouraged by little things that make it look like maybe you have picked the wrong path because there's, I have a graduate right now that uh, started in an acute care hospital and their pediatric therapist just left and uh, he had never considered being a pediatric therapist and now he's one of the happiest practitioners I know. He just recently had a, a young son of his own and he said that being a pediatric therapist and having his own children is like a joy that he never anticipated. So if you have that calling and you feel like it really is a calling, don't be surprised if it keeps coming back up over time, even if it isn't the way you start. So follow your own path and you'll find where you're supposed to end up. But relative to peds, if that's really your calling, it'll keep finding you, believe me. That's awesome. Okay. So now getting in more with like program specific. So we see a lot of students putting in extra work to better certain parts of their application to be the best all-around applicant they can be. Since every school values different aspects of the application, what would you say that your program values the most? Or maybe not even that, but if you see it on an application, it kind of like catches your eye. Well, that's another great question. And since I've worked at multiple programs, what I'll say in general is that every program I've worked at certainly creates a grid. That's, you can't get past the statistics of it where your GPA and your GREs all factor in, and your prereqs, all those sorts of things factor in. So regardless of what I'm going to say next, you have to know that like every school is going to create a numeric ranking based on numbers. I don't necessarily like that, but the logic obviously is that you want your graduates to pass the state boards and to be able to go out and practice. So that said, and putting that aside, that isn't necessarily what grabs faculty's attention. So uh, a lot of programs that do live interviews, and we happen to do live interviews at Mount Union that are a faculty, a student member interviewing the applicant, and that's 30 minutes of the interview, then a group interview to watch how you interact with other applicants. And that is one of the critical things we look at because we want to see kind of a sampling of your ability to think on your feet, to be professional, because we're kind of projecting what would you be like when you're talking to patients and their families and other professionals, other PTs, doctors, nurses, occupational therapists. So we, we're trying to get a snapshot of that. And we're also trying to put you in a group. So for our group, process, which we usually do a kind of a problem-based learning sequence, we're looking to see, do you talk over other students? Do you invite other students to come in? Are you a person who can take leadership but not dominate? And so we, we, we kind of look at this balanced approach of saying, how are you when you're by yourself? How are you when you're in a group? And then I think the other thing that I think is really important is that you take ownership of whatever it is you're presenting. So you look at the fullness of your application and you, you take for your GPA, for your GRE, and you have, if there's something that you're not happy with, uh, like a lot of our interview process will say things like, if you had anything to do over, would you do it again? And, and I would say that some of my most impressive answers are yes and no. <laughs> no, I wouldn't do anything over again because I've learned so much. And then they, they show that they're accountable, that they recognize that maybe in their freshman year or their sophomore year, they had some distractors or maybe something catastrophic happened in their senior year. And they take ownership for that. And so they might say, I wouldn't change anything because I grew so much through having to face this adversity that I don't think I'd be where I am without that. And then you have those that say, yes, I would who have not found redeeming value for some of their uh, mistakes. And, and both answers can really impress. And I think ultimately 
what I would say most impresses us is someone who is ready to jump in to that next level of, of not just being a strong person, but being a strong professional who, who knows how to take uh, constructive criticism, who knows how to look at the breadth and depth of issues, and uh, who can think on their feet. Now, we have some very quiet introverts who sometimes do better with writing, and so we have a component of our group process where we let them reflect in writing. So we give, we have kind of a back exit too for those people who don't necessarily meet the stage performance level of, of what we're looking for. And so reflective writing is another piece. So I would say uh, being a reflective person that you're obviously not a practitioner yet, yet most people have enough volunteer hours that they have a practitioner in mind, so to speak. So I would just say it's the whole of who you are. You have to have made peace with whoever you are, whatever you've done and whatever your reasons for being in the field are and be comfortable portraying that. Because we have to see, I say that to students all the time, don't assume we can see anything. I mean, we, I feel like I'm a somewhat perceptive person, but that doesn't mean that someone hasn't stolen my wallet, you know, so that, so show us who you are, talk to us, uh, reveal who you are, share things that are important to you. Don't hijack the interview, but take time to stretch those interview questions and, and let us really see who you are. Also follow up when we have students who follow up with an interview with a thank you note or you know something that talks about what they liked about our program because I think every program that I've worked at is stellar and I would have no problem if someone said you know I'm choosing this program over yours because I think I have a better fit there. There's, no, there's not one student I want who doesn't fit at Mount Union because I don't want them to spend the next two and a half years of their lives miserable and so we really are looking for those students who identify with our mission and with the, the things that we prioritize. And I think that as you become more savvy about what you want, then I think you need to, to say that. And if you find something about it, not just our university, but any university that when you're there that you really like that, tell people, tell the people that are working there that this is exactly what you're looking for and that you, that you feel like that you could add to that by some of the strengths that you perceive you have. So I would say, uh, the professionalism and then the, the ability to match with an institution and find yourself there, see yourself sitting there and being part of it. Awesome. So going off of that, I know you had mentioned that obviously you have interviews. So for anyone who applies to your program, what can they expect out of this timeline of decision, like from when they submit their application to when they are either accepted, rejected, deferred, or whatnot? So uh, well, we're a smaller university, our class sizes are only 30, and we purposely keep it at that. So we, we try to get kind of a, a, at least the way that the program was initially set up, and I, I don't see that changing anytime soon. We try to get an early take on applicants so that we have a fairly large applicant pool, because we realize that a lot of our students who come will be looking at other institutions. And we're from Ohio, so we have five other institutions that when people do PT cast, they generally just put us on the list. So we were objective enough to realize that people aren't coming from around the world to Mount Union. And yet we're proud of ourselves, but so we know that if we get you early and you apply early, so we usually, we open up our portal for PT cast sometime in October, and we usually have it closed sometime towards the end of November. So you have about a couple months to get your application in. Once we close the portal and applications are closed. Within the next couple of weeks, we try to set up our admissions committee will meet and we'll look at our applicants. We'll kind of rank them based on a scoring rubric that we have that addresses some of the things we talked about earlier. And then we'll begin to call people based on where they fall in that lineup. 
Once we get you set up for an interview, which is usually within a couple of weeks after we make those calls, you usually have about, I would say, a three to four week wait from the time that you have interviewed till the time that you hear from us. Uh, so most people here in December, in our case, because we do the, the fall applications. And at this point, because we're newly accredited, uh, we're getting more applications all the time. Whether that will change exactly how we do it, I'm not sure. But at this time, I, we like to have our class mostly filled, uh, if possible, by January, so that if we get people who say initially yes or initially no, that we can, again, eliminate them and keep moving down the list. So right now, we tend to go down into our wait list at least 30 or 40 patient, 34 patients, students down our wait list. Uh, hopefully, none of them are patients. So that, that process of people saying yes, no, going down the wait list, calling them saying yes or no, because we usually give you about a week to decide whether you want to make a deposit or not and hold your seat, can take some time. I would say right now, by the time you get into March, we are starting an onboarding process. Uh, that, that means we usually have a seated class of 30 that we anticipate will be the class that we have. And it isn't that, again, in a small school, you can't lose applicants because I, there is kind of this unspoken rule that not everyone follows. And that is by the time you get to March and people have committed to a school, you shouldn't, we call the word poaching. I don't really know if that's a little bit too strong of a word. You shouldn't take other school's students if they've committed, but you know, I'm an American. I've been an American for a long time. And I think that people should be able to choose where they go. And so if they decide last minute that they get a chance to go to the school of their dreams, no hard feelings. I mean, that's really my feeling. Of course, we want to seek people, but if they fit somewhere else better, all the only reason I'm saying that is there may be some people who haven't heard by March where they're going, but if they've interviewed and they're on a wait list, they shouldn't give up because this process is what it is. And so, and also I, let me point out that where you fall on a wait list has really little to do with how you'll succeed. So say you're on a wait list, that does not mean you're not gonna be one of the most capable PTs around. I certainly have found that a lot of my favorite physical therapists weren't 4.0 students, and some of my favorite ones are 4.0 students. So it, it, something that we at Mount Union have tried to kind of look at is what is the balance between having good GPA versus a GPA that's competitive, but not completely at the top of the line. So if you are at the top of the line, you'll probably be getting your answers faster in terms of the GPA, GRE piece. But if you aren't there and you have a competitive GPA, but you are on a wait list somewhere, just be patient. I know last year we took patient or patients, why do I keep seeing patients, students clear into May. So if you haven't heard, and then the other piece is don't hesitate to call schools. You may feel like you're nagging them, and probably that's what we're saying behind your back, but it's, it's your life. So call, find out where you are on the wait list, find out if, if we're able to reveal that information to you, find out if, if uh, there's still hope of you getting a seat, and just kind of know your status. And again, it's your life. Don't worry about offending people. A lot of our favorite people offended us at one point or time, so it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, perfect. So for a student that visits your campus, there's a good chance that you'll they'll only get to see like certain parts of the campus and parts of the program. What would you say is something that's unique about your program that typically students on a tour might not choose? Things such as like interprofessional opportunities or the research component of your program or like different styles of teaching? So those are points we... One, we've tried to incorporate some of that in, into the interview, so you get a little bit of a sense of what problem-based learning might be like, a little bit of a sense 
of some of that. But the things that you won't see about Mount Yi, and I don't think are, again, the dynamics of our, our faculty is they're kind of interacting with uh, some of the clinicians that come in in our lab assistants or in our problem-based learning sequence. We have, I would say, almost 100% of our tutors for PDL are from the community with usually me coordinating the process. And you won't see what it's like to have a peer relationship with a clinician from the area, usually someone with a tremendous amount of experience. And I would say, in many ways, from looking at exit interviews of our students, our problem-based learning sequence is, is one of our, our favorite components of the, the curriculum for students because it's highly interactive, small group, a lot of interactions with clinicians. Uh, we're starting to bring in more live patients towards the end of that. Uh, the other thing I think it, with Mount Union, uh, and you might get a sense of this on the tour, is that it, it has a, it's a small community, and this is kind of a good and bad thing, is there are not a lot of temptations in Alliance, Ohio to keep you from studying, so you, you won't realize how true that is until you live here, you know, that you, so that you won't see on interview day. You'll think, well, that's a small town with not a lot to do, but after you've been here for a year, you'll go, well, this is really a small town without a lot to do, so I can super focus on what I need to do in PT school. That you won't see. I think the other piece is we have a really dynamic group of adjuncts and core faculty and our staff is, is incredible. I don't think you'll realize how much of a family you'll become with your cohort and with us. We have, we've only graduated uh, one class. We hopefully we'll have this next class graduating soon if, if the pandemic cooperates and we can get them some sites. But our graduates stay in touch and they, a lot of them are coming back to work and take positions and do uh, little evening seminars for our students on how to study for the state boards and how to get your first job. And I really like that. It, we're kind of like a family that keeps growing. Perfect. So kind of going along with what you just mentioned with them kind of mentoring how to study for boards and whatnot, a student who is accepted into your program and is there for the next two and a half years, what other resources do you guys provide them to help them succeed throughout their program and obviously further while they're there? So we are, we're in a kind of a growth phase of our program right now because our, our emphasis had been up till now on, on getting accredited. But now that we've graduated our first class and our, our first class, we supported them going to a, a test prep so they, they all had that. And our ultimate pass rate has been very good. What we recognized in our initial pass rates that we could do more with helping them prepare for the state boards. So we've, I've been working with a consultant talking about ways to, to improve some of that. And so we've added some modules for test taking. And those are electives. So that if, if you feel that tests tend to, to come back and bite you, then we want to give you added ways to, to prep for tests so that you can build your confidence. We work closely with our accommodations office, but we're also kind of working with some of our uh, things like score builders and uh, therapy ed to try to develop on campus uh, ways to, to test prep. So there's that. Then we have a business class that we're pulling in a lot of our uh, graduates and, and people in the field to talk about interviews and how to get residencies and how to pay off uh, loans that you've taken out for school. We also, uh, during clinics, we uh, give people when they're doing their clinicals the opportunity to find places they may be interested in working and to present those to us. And then we do the footwork behind the scenes to try to get them in there. So even though we've only graduated one class, we already have at least three people, one who's already achieved a residency, two who have uh, gone on and gotten fellowships, 
We have one that just uh, contacted me today about going to a residency. We have one of our new graduates that was accepted for a residency at Children's Hospital in Columbus. And so we have, I think because we're small enough that as students identify those things they want to pursue, that we can help pursue them. Then along that line, we're developing modules uh, of special interest so that they will be, right now, because we're just developing them, they probably won't be electives per se because we don't have enough to have a lot of electives yet, but eventually when we have more of a pool of them, we'll have the ability for students to, to focus on pediatrics or geriatrics or orthopedics or oncology or women's health. And uh, we're developing modules in all of those, chronic pain management, those sorts of things, so that they can begin to kind of fine tune their education, still prep for the boards in every way that every other student is, but to be able to kind of prepare for their, their path ahead as well. Those are amazing. So next question is, many students go right from their undergraduate degree to their graduate degree, while some are non-traditional. So we, at Pre-PC Grind, we have a lot of non-traditional students. No matter what the case is, obviously everyone gets first day jitters. So in your program, what can students expect on their first day of classes and kind of like the first week, because I know that's kind of an adjustment period. So upon entering your program, what can they expect? So again, we just started an onboarding process last year. So we are now seeing the first class that's kind of gone through that. So in our onboarding process, we use a format where they can get to know everyone else who's been accepted at, at the program and they can share videos. They can talk about who's going to be their roommate. And the outcome of that was for this first year that when they came for orientation in the summer, they already had kind of gotten to know each other, at least virtually. And from doing a few ad hoc small group talks with the students, uh, we, we feel like that has taken off so much of the edge because once they had a sense of that they weren't flying solo on day one, so you're, back to your question is a typical scenario prior to our onboarding were that when people came in on day one, they might have met each other at orientation and they might have found a roommate, but they didn't have a sense of who they were as a cohort. And so on day one, they were still doing a lot of that preliminary building, like uh, who will I talk to, who will be the groups that I work with. And I'm not saying that the groups they develop in the onboarding process are the groups they stay with, but there's still a comfort level. Now, I, I openly admit that our first semester, to use the most unprofessional word I can think of, sucks. It really, it's not a great first semester. There's a lot of basic science and it, it has its stresses. So what we've done on day one is we introduced peer tutors uh, that would be from the second year class, people who've already gone through it. So the students know that as they're going through those things that make them feel like they're not gonna survive, that they can make appointments with the peer tutors. We have tutors for our pharmacology course, which is challenging and that's provided through our nursing department. And so we, we try to set them up with, uh, okay, here's where you go if you need this, here's where you go if you need this. And as they begin to get overloaded, they also in the onboarding process and orientation have met our main learning coach and, and she's a professional that is just, you know, hop, skip and a jump down the road from where we are. And she is available really kind of around the clock for them to, to work on learning strategies. Uh, we introduce them to our counselors. We also are beginning uh, to do more of a student workload document where we really uh, talk to each other about what are you asking the students to do so that we can kind of internally keep track of what is all on the student's plate. And uh, we spend a lot of time ensuring that we're not overloading students. We've been doing that pretty much from the get-go. We're gonna try to formalize that a little bit more. 
I think the good news is that I don't think there's very many students that would disagree that uh, when they meet our faculty that they know that we're we're in there to give them a path forward. And my philosophy is that if you've been accepted to our program, that we're committed to making sure you can complete the program as long as that's a mutual effort. So I think once we make that clear to the students that as long as you're putting out your best effort and you still believe that you have the capacity and you are getting in that ballpark of grades that say that I've got the capacity to do this, that we have mechanisms, remediations, other things that say, if you have a bad semester, you know, we can live with that. You know, it's, it's we want to make it both the, the reality that they're facing and that they feel is kind of almost crushing at times and the hope that they have that hopefully is not crushing them at all, that they can still live in the realities of both of those and continue to see a path forward. So mostly they meet their advisors. If they don't have an advisor that they really click with, they're always welcome to talk to me or anyone else that they need to. We really just try to, to keep a, a good pulse on our students. And I, I would just say that we, you know, our doors are always open. I, I was looking at exit interviews our students said the other day, and, and, and that is apart from the fact that they really like some of our new stuff, because we're a new program, so we have new stuff. You know, there are those people that always like that kind of thing but they really like the closeness of the faculty. And so I think day one, you'll see a lot of basic science. And I would probably warn anyone who's choosing to go to any program that's heavy on basic science that your brain cells are gonna quickly run out uh, if you're trying to memorize and it's all basic science. So if there's anything I would say is uh, in prepping for day one and you look at the names of the things that you're facing and you're going, oh, I wasn't very good at pharmacology or, oh boy, I really struggled in anatomy and physiology or pathophysiology, whatever the case may be, is brush up uh, as much as you can in the summer so that at least you have the lingo. So you're not sitting there going, let's see, uh, medial means, oh, okay, abduction, you, you should, you should uh, have the language down and then you'll probably do fine. But yeah, day one, I mean, I, I wish I was a student so I could actually say, see if there's any veracity to anything I just said. I mean, it's quite possible they'd say that is so bogus, <laughs> but I hope I've represented at least a little bit of what they might feel. Yeah, no, it definitely, it definitely sounds like you guys kind of hone in on the whole like community and everyone's there for each other. And I think that definitely helps when, you know, undergraduate programs, there, I wouldn't say they're lax, but it's more like, you know, like you go to class, this or that. Whereas physical therapy, it's, I mean, all the programs that I've looked at, they're all of them that first semester is gross anatomy and kind of those tougher courses, but then you like get more into like the clinical practice of all that. So I've definitely, I think a lot can agree with me on this that other programs also suggest brushing up on those like basic terms that you're going to need to know you, you kind of have to master them before you even get there so that when you're going through it, it's easier for you to understand and you don't fall behind the ball so our next question is so we know that there's a lot of pre-pts that have a rough start to their journey whether it's low grades or they you know didn't really decide on physical therapy until later on in their education. So at Pre-PG Grind, one of our missions is to help push and guide students to take the correct course of action to ultimately get into PT school. We've seen it often that students have gotten in with low GPAs as low as a 
for a student with a low GPA who wants to get into PT school, what would you recommend them doing? So that's a great question because I, I know that there are some schools that that would completely close off. And, and, and again, to me, a degree, it, if it's a, a credible school, it doesn't matter if you get your first choice. I have two 18-year-olds going off to college and I keep trying to tell them, you know, it doesn't matter if you go to Yale or if you go to Kent State, you know, right now, you just, you need to find what you want to do and do it. So I, I, for those people who have a lower GPA, first of all, I would say there are a couple things you can do if you have the time and inclination, and that is find your lowest grades and get rid of them, particularly in the science, like retake a course and, 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 and buoy up your, your GPA. I, I don't struggle so much with a, a GPA if I see patterns. I'm a qualitative researcher, and so I triangulate almost every data piece that I get. And I look at it and say, okay, here's a 2.4 GPA, uh, but look, she, they had a, a, a 1.9 in their freshman year and a, a, a 2.3 in their sophomore year. And then as time went on, you could see this pattern that's going up. Uh, so I would say, uh, learn how to make your case. And if that's what you find, or the other case scenario, you start out strong and then you have a rough year that drops you down, know how to make your case to say, I know this doesn't look good, but this is what happened in my sophomore year. Because there are two things that faculty do. One is they go, uh, they're making excuses. And you hear that all the time. So you don't want to be known as an excuse maker. So you, you have to find a way to both be accountable and to explain kind of what happened. The thing that I think uh, that they have to come to terms with is the reason why that GPA worries people is that that CAPTI holds all of us uh, accountable for our first time pass rates and our overall pass rates. And there is an association with GPAs and, and pass rates. So there's not a lot of programs that can afford to give up their accreditation by taking chances on a lot of students with, with lower GPAs if they don't know for a fact that they're competent in those areas that they need to be competent. So I think that's, it's not an easy answer to say, but I think it, the onus on the students who, who find that they are plagued by this low GPA is to have a way, either a higher um, chemistry or a higher bio or a higher physics or a biomechanics or something that would show, look, I took this higher level class in my senior year and I aced it. Once you can make your case to say, I had a rough start and there's no way I can buoy this GPA up significantly higher without spending another whole year of my life uh, retaking courses, but I can show you that my higher level ed classes, I get it. Yeah, and I'm competent with that material because uh, that's ultimately what we want to know. One, have you found the profession that you have the aptitude for and uh, the clinical competency for? And two, do you, can you, at the end of this, pass your state board so that you don't dump $100,000 down the drain and then find yourself sitting with a degree you can't use? So part, it, you know, it's a two-way thing that you could say programs are watching out for themselves, but in many ways, they're also just watching out for students too. So if you have a low GPA, I think you have to kind of sit with it, figure out what went wrong, and then know for yourself that you actually uh, have taken ownership for that and that you have kind of assessed yourself and say, I can do this. And the best way to me to see that is to see patterns that are improving and the grade is going up or higher level courses that you're able to master. Sounds good. Okay, so now for our final question is, what is one piece of advice that you would give to any applicant during their pre-PT journey? Oh, well, right now, wash your hands for sure. 
And then I think uh, basically count the cost, you know, count the cost of two and a half years and, and figure out how you're going to prioritize. Right now we have a, a number of, of very capable students who are struggling financially, so they are trying to work and go to school. And that means their grades are always borderline. And we have a number of really great students who are hovering around the sea and, and that's going to put them in front of a board and it's going to put their their whole future at risk. And so I'd say count the cost ahead of time. Fig figure out based on the program, the cost of the program, uh, the time demands of the program, can you do it? Is this something you're committed to for a long haul? Second of all, to kind of figure out where are your support systems and are they close enough by or are you flexible enough in what you need that wherever you go that you've got a support system in place because you're not going to make it solo. Do you, was there anybody as you were interviewing or doing things that you absolutely can't stand? Because if you're, you as a student go like, oh, I couldn't stand that one person that interviewed. Well, you're going to see them like every week <laughs> for the next two and a half years. So find a match. I mean, find, find the match of a program where you could see yourself fitting in. Now, again, that's based on largely first impressions and your interactions with uh, the people that you're talking to. But you should feel a real peace at this program that will work for me. Also, if you have, we talked about this earlier, if you have a specialty in mind or a, a goal of perhaps uh, being a great researcher, I'll just tell you right now, if you have a goal of being a great researcher, we are probably not your program. Uh, our research program and, and be kind of an accredited program has been the area that we are just now getting up and running. And we have the resources, but if you were to come in this fall, for instance, I can't promise you that you would have a line of research that would have you enthused. We have some faculty who have lines of research that are fascinating, and if you got with them, you'd be fine. We have some newer faculty who don't have their lines of research up yet. So I think part of it is knowing what really makes you happy and what motivates you, and then can your program offer that? Because part of what happens is students come in and they become part of the formation of a program. And, and I love that. I think that when I look at the strengths of, of any program that I've ever worked at, it's always the students. I mean, it's the faculty that you have, we're the backbone, but it's the students that you choose. And it's usually the students who match, who aren't always angry about something, who aren't always you know frustrated with something. And again, I'm not Angry students, frustrated students often are exactly what a program needs. So I think you come as you are, and then you, you be willing to grow. I, I think that it is the most, the most rewarding thing for me. And again, I was a clinician for 25 years, and I was used to rewards every day. You know, I was used to coming home after putting in a day's work and, and feeling good about what I had done and the outcomes I saw. And with students, it's a slower motion type thing. So you build relationships with students and, and those are great. But what your goal is, is to see the students become who they want to be and to be in the profession that they have given so much to being part of. So I would say, you know, know, know that that's what you want. Talk about it all the time because you're going to be taking somebody else's seat if you haven't kind of thought that through. But you will become the shape of the program. And so... If you choose to come to Mount Union, then that's something that Mount Union will always have. We'll always have what you contributed to the program. Uh, it may be the thing that contributed to some of the strengths of our program. For instance, our PBL program. Our PBL 3, our third sequence in that our final course, was uh, largely created by students. And it's not about what we can get from you. It's about really saying, I'm taking this journey and it's going to be something I will you know, always value 
for the journey's sake, but then you know to to know that you have chosen what you want to do, and make sure that you're uh, you're in the right program for you, and then it works. And I would say in all the years that I've taught, you rarely see a class that doesn't come together, transform into amazing people, and then as you follow them over the course of of time, you you you're thrilled as is that you were part of that journey. It, though that part seems smaller as time goes on. But for instance, right now in, in our faculty, two of my faculty members were former students of mine nine years ago. And so to me, there's nothing more exciting than to know that it can follow that path as well. You can have practicing clinicians come and now work for you as a professor and go full circle. And so I just find your right program. And again, talk, talk all the time, talk with us, communicate, don't ever feel like you're bugging us. Uh, know that we probably won't say that you are, and we will put up with whatever, because we know it's stressful choosing the right program. But you asked some great questions, and I think maybe the best thing to do is to say, as a student, am I ready for day one? Am I ready to have an apartment that wasn't my apartment before, and a town that wasn't my town before, and a group of friends that weren't my friends before, and college that I knew nothing about before and step into class day one and be committed for two and a half years. That's a lot, but I think you have to have asked yourself that. We, we would love to have you consider us. Yeah, that's awesome. So that concludes all of our questions. I just want to say thank you again for coming on. I know that right now everything's crazy and you guys have I'm sure your program has all adjusted to online teaching as well. Do you have any other questions? I do not. I've thoroughly enjoyed talking to you and it's, it's been, it's been fun to talk about Mount a little bit with you. Thank you so much. Um, I hope you have a great weekend and good luck the rest of the semester. Hey, good luck to you too. Uh, we'll all get through this to the other side. What is up, guys? You've been listening to the Pre-PT Grind podcast, where we don't just help you get into PT school, but our mission is to make you the best physical therapist you can possibly be. And I have a quick question for you. Did you enjoy this episode? And if you did, I want to ask a huge favor. See, the biggest thing that helps this podcast grow and that will spread our message of helping pre-PTs get into physical therapy school without wasting time and money is if you rate, review, and subscribe to the Pre-PT Grind podcast. What this basically does is tell the platforms out there that we're on is that you like our stuff, that we're doing something right, and that we're bringing value to you all our audience. So if you can take about three seconds out of your day to rate, review, and subscribe to the Pre-PT Grind podcast and tell your friends about Pre-PT Grind, we would be forever, forever grateful to all of you. So thank you again for listening to another episode of the Pre-PT Grind podcast. We will see you on the next one.